Greetings, fellow humans. Katrina here. Quick disclaimer, I'm a professional, not your professional. Nothing about to say should be taken as medical, legal, otherwise advice this podcast is purely for education and amusement. That is it. Disclaimer over. So I thought I'd talk a bit today about what I don't know about something called hypersomnolence disorder. And that can be found in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, my favorite book right now, the DSM-5-TR. And so on page 417, we got the diagnostic criteria for F51.11, which if you remember from previous episode, I mentioned those codes. And so those that code is actually from the ICD-10, um, not quite compatible with the ICD-11 because of their timing issues and the development of each of those texts. So let's dive right into the diagnostic criteria for hypersomolence disorder. A says self-reported excessive sleepiness, so that's hypersomnolence, despite a main sleep period lasting at least seven hours with at least one of the following symptoms. Number one, recurrent periods of sleep or lapses into sleep within the same day. Two, a prolonged main sleep episode of more than nine hours per day that is non-restorative i.e. unrefreshing. Number three, difficulty being fully awake after abrupt awakening. So those are the self-reported sleepiness with at least one of those three symptoms. That's A. And then B, the hypersomnolence occurs at least three times per week for at least three months. C, The hypersomnolence is accompanied by significant distress or impairment in cognitive, social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. So that's a key criteria that comes about in many of the diagnoses, is that it actually interferes with your ability to do what you're wanting to do with your day. Um, Then D, the hypersomnolence is not better explained by and does not occur exclusively during the course of another sleep disorder. So examples of other sleep disorders include things like narcolepsy, breathing-related sleep disorders, such as sleep apnea or upper airway resistance syndrome, also circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorder, or a parasomnia. So that's D. It's not better explained by something else. Then E, the hypersomnolence is not attributable to the physiological effects of a substance. For example, a drug abuse or even a medication. There are medications that can cause excessive sleepiness. F. Coexisting mental and medical disorders do not adequately explain the predominant complaint of hypersomnolence. So that would be maybe a coexisting diagnosis of depression with sleep apnea, that might adequately explain hypersomnolence, and so that would rule out this particular disorder itself. And it says to specify if, with a mental disorder, including substance use disorders, so say somebody's got alcohol abuse disorder and hypersomnolence disorder, you would want to specify with mental disorder, including substance use disorders, and you can specify with a medical condition, Uh, You can specify with another sleep disorder. So maybe somebody has hypersomnolence disorder and narcolepsy disorder. That is possible. And then there's a coding note. The code F5111 applies to all three specifiers. And so the specifiers are mental disorder, medical condition, or another sleep disorder. 
The code is also the relevant associated mental disorder, medical condition, or other sleep disorder immediately after the code for hypersomnolence in order to indicate the association. So what that means is if I were going to bill insurance for hypersomnolence disorder and I wanted to co-occurringly bill something like narcolepsy, then I would put the primary problem is F5111 and secondary would be whatever the code is for narcolepsy. I wonder if I can, uh, I don't know, but oh, here's one, obstructive sleep apnea. So there's another code that's a G code. That's a G47.33, random information that you're not going to retain or need to retain. I don't know what I'm talking about. So let's go back to what I don't know about cypersomolence. And so it says to specify too, if it's acute, subacute, or persistent, let me explain what that means. Acute is if it's a duration of less than one month. Subacute is a duration of one to three months. And if you'll remember back to criteria B, it says that it occurs at least three times per week for more or for at least three months. So a subacute hypersomnolence disorder would have that duration of one to three months. And then persistent, uh, I guess that would be the full diagnosis of hypersomnolence disorder, would be a duration of more than three months, as indicated in the criteria. There's also the helpful specificity of severity. So it says specify severity based on the degree of difficulty maintaining daytime alertness as manifested by the occurrence of multiple attacks or of irresistible sleepiness within any given day occurring, for example, while sedentary, driving, visiting with friends, or working. Num mild specifies difficulty maintaining daytime alertness one to two days per week. So that means the other five or six days, everything's good. And then moderate. Difficulty maintaining daytime alertness three to four days a week. So that's more days than not if you're pushing the four days a week. And then severe would be more days than not for sure. Difficulty maintaining daytime alertness five to seven days a week. That means it's interfering and causing distress typically within a, the day-to-day. -day. If it's five to seven days a week, that's pretty much every day of the week. Um, and then it goes into some recording procedures, diagnostic features, but the other part that I thought that I would touch on is some of the functional consequences of hypersomnolence disorder, and that's on page 420 of the DSM-5-TR. It says, the low level of alertness that occurs while an individual fights the need for sleep can lead to reduced efficiency, diminished concentration, and poor memory during daytime activities. Hypersomnolence can lead to significant distress and dysfunction in work and social relationships. Prolonged nocturnal sleep and difficulty awakening can result in difficulty in meeting morning obligations, such as driving to work on time. Unintentional daytime sleep episodes can be embarrassing and even dangerous. For instance, if the individual is driving or operating heavy machinery when the episode occurs. So there's some information about a differential diagnosis, and I'll just give you the highlights on that. Normative variation in sleep. So variations in what's normal for you and what's normal for one person might not be normal than another's. But an average sleep duration of fewer than seven hours per night strongly suggests inadequate nocturnal sleep. But if you look at what's actually average in the United States, 
typical adults in America get on average 6.75 hours of sleep on a weeknight. And they try to catch up sometimes. And it says a diagnostic and therapeutic trial of sleep extension for 10 to 14 days can often clarify the diagnosis. There's also narcolepsy, which is a type of hypersomnolence disorder. There's fatigue as a symptom of another mental disorder or medical condition. So something like um, generalized anxiety disorder might be extremely exhausting. It says, unlike hypersomnolence, tiredness is not necessarily relieved by increased sleep and is unrelated to sleep quantity or quality. A medical condition like chronic fatigue syndrome doesn't really matter how much sleep you get. The sleepiness or fatigue is consistently and persistently there. Then there's breathing-related sleep disorders. I want to read this one a little more in depth. It says chronic sleepiness is common in breathing-related sleep disorders. Individuals with hypersomnolence and breathing-related sleep disorders may have similar patterns of excessive sleepiness. Breathing-related sleep disorders are suggested by a history of loud snoring, pauses in breathing during sleep, and non-refreshing sleep. Examination often reveals obesity, a small airway, and a large neck diameter. Hypertension is common, and some individuals may demonstrate signs of heart failure. Polysomnographic studies can confirm the presence of epinic, ep, I don't know that word, A-P-N-E-I-C, epinic, epnic, epnic, there we go, epnic events in breathing-related sleep disorder and their absence in hypersomnolence disorder. So sleep apnea, upper airway resistance syndrome, other breathing-related sleep disorders are to be noted, and that's not necessarily hypersomnolence, even though the sleepiness, the fatigue, there are commonalities between the two. There's also circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorders, parasomnias, and parasomnias such as non-REM sleep arousal disorders, so that's sleepwalking, night terrors. Uh, it says, or REM sleep behavior disorder rarely produce the prolonged, undisturbed nocturnal sleep or daytime sleepiness characteristic of the hypersomnolence disorder. So somebody might feel rested after a night of sleepwalking. Not that they always do. Some people are probably exhausted after a night of sleepwalking, especially if you've gone and done a bunch of activities and totally unaware. And then lastly, it says hypersomnolence and other mental disorders and medical conditions, um, major depressive disorder, especially episodes with atypical features, medical conditions, certain cancers, multiple sclerosis. It says here, if the predominant complaint of the excessive sleepiness is adequately explained by another mental disorder or medical condition, then the additional diagnosis of hypersomnolence disorder is not warranted. So that means if you have one, you don't need the other label. However, if the hypersomnolence is not adequately explained by a comorbid mental disorder or medical condition, i.e. the severity and nature of the hypersomnolence far exceed what would be expected with a mental disorder or medical condition, an additional diagnosis of hypersomnolence is then, yes, warranted. So that's kind of the key thing to remember is that if it's not explainable by something else, it's probably this. If it is explaining, explainable by something else, 
that's probably the answer. If it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck, right? So I hope you enjoyed today's episode about what I don't know about hypersomalance disorder. Maybe I'll dive a little bit more into breathing-related disorders or narcolepsy or some of the other ones in this particular section. They're pretty interesting. There's even like a nightmare disorder and rapid eye movement sleep behavior disorder, all sorts of different sleep-related things that can occur. And the point of a diagnosis, I like to reiterate, is not just for the money for insurance, right? You need that for the insurance to reimburse, but also it is a guide. It can kind of be a guide to treatment. If somebody has, let's say, major depressive disorder and gets diagnosed with hypersomalance disorder, and that's a misdiagnosis, they didn't know they were depressed, um, then they might get a more accurate treatment if they know that they have a depression. If you get the accurate diagnosis, that can be a guide to treatment. Another example of that is when somebody gets a diagnosis of something like borderline personality disorder, the guide to treatment is usually dialectical behavioral therapy or some variation of cognitive behavioral therapy. So I wanted to throw in that little tidbit. I hope you did enjoy today's episode. I think I talked a bit fast. I'll try and slow down next time. If you want to contribute to this show, click the button on the website. And remember, I appreciate each and every one of you simply for existing.